was very young starting a business. Let's be honest, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was hard. Yeah, I was really burnt out. In fact, had I not left for business school, I may not have come back. And for me, it was a chance to really think about all the things I'd been exposed to and really put things into perspective. And in fact, I actually interviewed with other companies. And what I realized during that process was it's less about what you do or where you do it, but more about the people you work with. You could do marketing anywhere, but are you working for someone that really cares about you, that's going to invest in your future and really become a mentor? Because that's what's going to make a difference. So I needed to go back to Indiana. I needed to go back to Angie's List because that was where I was going to learn from great people and be able to grow. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Ida Abdalkani, a Chief Catalyzer. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're featuring a conversation with Angie Hicks, the co-founder of Angie's List and the chief customer officer of Angie Home Services. It was a great conversation about Angie's journey, building a career focused on offering consumers dependable local information. This is actually a conversation from our P&G Alumni Enrichment Webinar Series, with this chat hosted by moderator Ilyana Rojas. You'll get to hear Angie answer live questions from the P&G Alumni audience around the world, so stick around till the end. And as you know, each month, the P&G Alumni Network hosts their enrichment series of webinars for some great chats on really engaging topics, featuring live Q&A with every guest. You can see all past webinars and sign up for upcoming webinars with some amazing business leaders at pgalums.com webinars. And of course, from time to time, we'll feature some of the best of them here on this podcast. And also, if you haven't yet heard, the next PNG Alumni Global Conference is almost here, November 2nd through 5th in Washington, D.C. You'll get to hear from many former PNG CEOs, numerous C-suite alumni leaders, and emerging trendsetters, and you'll also have exclusive access to D.C. area events with your fellow alums at the PNG Alumni Global Conference, November 2nd through 5th, 2023 in Washington, D.C. Lots more to come, so stay tuned by subscribing to the PNG Alumni Newsletter at pgalums.com. But let's get back to today's episode. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Angie Hicks, co-founder of Angie's List. Angie, we're so excited to have you here. <laughs> Good morning. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful story. Can you share a little bit more about Angie's List and what led you to start the company and what were some of your initial hurdles? Sure. So I started Angie's List in 1995 when I graduated from DePauw. So I met my co-founder, Bill Osterley, when I was an intern in college. He worked at a ventures capital firm in Indianapolis, and I interned with him. It was, it was, I always kind of look fondly back on that time. I, when I was at DePauw, I knew I wanted to do something in, in math or probably comics or something like that. But I didn't really have any background or experience. You know, my I was the first in my immediate family to go to college. So I didn't really have perspective on these things. So as I was interviewing for internships, I didn't really know what I was interviewing for in many ways. So when the director suggested I interview at the venture capital firm, 
you know, my knowledge of venture capital firms is probably that they invested in small companies. That was probably it. But I went to the interview and 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 had a good conversation, but it was it was quite humorous. I mean, I think the first question Bill asked me when I went to the interview was um, was whether I was as smart as a person who had interviewed just before me at math. And I was like, how do you answer a question like that in an interview? So I answered honestly that if he wanted the math person, the guy that interviewed ahead of me was probably the better choice. We had a good conversation and he ended up offering me the position. And as we look back years later, he was always quick to say that, you know, the highlight on my resume at that point was employee of the month at Ryan's Steakhouse for those of us who had been in the Midwest in the 80s and 90s. And, and he thought I could use a break. And, you know, it's one of those scenarios where sometimes you don't even know what you're looking for and opportunities present themselves and you should just take them because you don't know where they'll lead. So I interned with Bill. And then during my senior year, I, I really thought I wanted to work at a small company. So, you know, it was 1995. I was mailing resumes off to small companies with my cover letter resume and not really hearing anything back and ended up getting an offer to work in consulting in Washington, D.C. And before I accepted that offer, Bill came to me and said, hey, I was thinking that I wanted to start a business. So why don't you forget about your offer. I know it's a crazy idea. And why don't you move to Ohio, which is where he was. He was in Columbus and let's start a business. And so I him hauled around about that for quite some time, talked to, talked to my parents, talked to my grandparents, trying to figure out what was a good idea. And I think the best advice I got was from my grandfather who said, what's the difference between being 22 and looking for a job and being 23 and looking for a job? Why don't you go ahead and give it a shot? I think you'll be fine. So the day after graduation, I packed up my Ford Escort and off I moved to Columbus, Ohio, not knowing a soul other than Bill and his wife. And, and we started what would become Angie's List. I got such an interesting story. Now, growing a company from two employees to thousands, I imagine, is quite the journey. Can you share some of the peaks and pitfalls you encountered along the way? Sure. So, you know, I started, I worked by myself probably for the full first year, which was incredibly hard. I mean, I kind of did everything, I, but I was a very quiet, shy person. And we had a business that we were patterning Angie's List after. It was a company called Unified Neighbors that started in the 70s in Indianapolis. But Unified Neighbors had built up their business by going door to door selling consumer memberships. And so we didn't have a marketing model. So the idea was that I would take calls from consumers. They could ask me who to hire. So it was calls back then. I mean, email was barely a thing in 1995. So people would call in and say, I'm looking for a plumber to fix a leaky faucet. And I would give them a list of plumbers. And then in the evening, I'd actually go door to door selling memberships, which was a horrible experience for someone as quiet and shy as I was. I mean, you know, when I look back on it, I'm like, you know, I, I measured my sales in one or two. Like if I had two sales or three sales, it was the best day ever. And, but we quickly realized that that probably wasn't a great way to scale the business. I think in the, within the first year, we had a thousand members and, and realized that we should probably think about something other than door-to-door -door and home shows as our sales venues. So we started some marketing and we became local marketers. So we opened this city by city. We were in Columbus. Columbus, if you know, for those of you in Ohio, I mean, has a really good network of local little newspapers, neighborhood newspapers. So we'd advertise there. Um, and we've successfully figured out how to get the phone to ring for people to call in and say, hey, I'm looking for this or that. 
and the list, we turned one or two sales a day and, you know, 10 or 12 sales a day and the business, it was turning. And, and we understood how the model would work. We understood from Unified Neighbors how that service would work. And then we had the opportunity a year later to actually buy Unified Neighbors, which was the Indianapolis business. So, so then we were a roaring success of two cities. You know, I was one person that was driving back and forth between those cities, trying to keep the lights on. Ended up hiring a couple of part-timers in each city and just hoped that they would come into work unsupervised, <laughs> answer the phones and lock the door on their way out. You know, I'm incredibly grateful for those early employees because who knows where it would have been had it not been for their dedication. <laughs> wow, definitely. And trust, it seems to be a big issue, still a, a big thing, value nowadays even. What have been right. some of your biggest learning moments as the company kept growing? Sure. So one of my favorite stories is, you know, we would open city by city. You know, we truly believed that knowing local service, you had to be local. So we had physical offices in the cities we opened. So our fourth city that we opened was actually in Charlotte, North Carolina. We had a friend that lived down in North Carolina and, you know, Charlotte struck us as a city that was similar to Columbus. It was a young city. It had lots of growth and we thought there was real opportunity for it to take off there. So we opened in Charlotte and, you know, did everything that we did in the other cities. So we started our little advertising in the little weekly newspapers. We would advertise in the daily newspaper, NPR. But also one of the things that we had found early on in the business was that getting initial media, getting press early on in that local city was key to getting the chapters, we called them, off the ground. And it was interesting in Charlotte, you know, for some reason to this day, you know, and we've opened <laughs> kind of across the country. Charlotte might have had the most difficult media market there was. We could not get a story placed. We could not. And because of that, Charlotte kind of grew kind of slowly. I even hired a local PR firm and thinking like, hey, they've got the contacts. They're from Charlotte. They'll be able to help us. And we still couldn't do it. Um, so Charlotte was honestly the first kind of the only city in our opening process that we contemplated shutting down. And what we discovered was like, well, let's just, we decided we would just pull back its marketing. We would pull back the investment we were making in that city and just see if it, you could organically grow, you know, and it, and it did. And then finally we did get the story in the Charlotte Observer and, <laughs> and things like that that made it take off. But it was an example of just like, it was so funny because it was a city that felt like it was a lot of people moved to that city and not all people were from Charlotte, but it was a city that was hard to break into. It was just an interesting example. I think the other thing that we learned early on as well is the reason why most businesses are started in big cities. You know, we started in the Midwest. We started in the cities that people oftentimes don't start in. And we realized, because we danced around opening in Chicago for a long, long time, probably a couple of years, to be quite honest. And because it was going to be a bigger risk, right? We didn't capitalize the business with a ton of money. We kind of raised funds as we needed them. So to open Chicago was going to be a bigger check to write. And, and when we finally did it, what we realized was bigger cities have lots more people. So your advertising works a lot harder. And so when looking back in retrospect, it was one of those where it was like, had we opened some of those bigger cities earlier, the business would have taken off and been a lot faster, even earlier than it actually was. So, you know, kind of risk reward is what we learned, but we also did the hard stuff first. So those opening in the Midwest cities, we knew our business would work there. 
So it wasn't like we had a business that was only going to work in five or six of the largest cities in the country. Uh, I imagine by the time you being the driving leader within the growth of this organization. So as, as you look back, what do you think was the defining moment for you as a leader? For me, I ran the business for three and a half years before I left for business school. The challenge for me is I was very young kind of starting a business. I mean, let's be honest, I didn't know what I didn't know. And Bill wasn't in the business day to day at that point. And it was hard. It was hard. So for me, I was really burnt out. Like, In fact, probably had I not left for business school, I may not have come back. I may not, I might have left permanently. So I went off to business school. And for me, it was a chance to really think about all the things I'd been exposed to and really put things into perspective. And in fact, even after I got out of business school, I actually interviewed with other companies. I wasn't sure whether I was going back. And marketing was the area I was most interested in and spent time interviewing. And what I realized during that process was it's less about what you do or where you do it, but more about the people you work with for me. And so I tell young people this all the time. It's like, you could do marketing anywhere, but are you working for someone that really cares about you, that's going to invest in your future and, and kind of really become a mentor? Because that's what's going to make a difference much more than whether you're, you know, selling widgets or, <laughs> or hamburgers. I don't care. I mean, marketing is, is marketing in many ways. So, so I, I remind people of that. And so, you know, I was actually in an interview and I was interviewed by someone and literally the person would ask me a question. I would give them an answer and the person would literally without a smile, without any expression, just say thank you and ask another question. And I was like, this is the person I'm going to work for. I should be excited and inspired by this. So, you know, after that process, I needed to go back to Indiana. I needed to go back to Angie's List because that was where I was going to learn from great people and, and be able to grow. You, you touch on so many points that have been relevant for many years, but I think now more, uh, you know, with this new environment, the, the importance of people and those connections, not only about, you mentioned what you do and how you do it, but the importance of the people that you work with. And I think that many of us didn't realize that until we're basically, you know, <laughs> don't have that that day-to-day -day connection as we used to have it before. So such an important point that you bring up. But going back to this, this people thought and, and the importance of who you work with, what have you learned about people management through those years? And has your man management style changed? Yeah, it, it absolutely has changed. I mean, you know, a 22-year-old a manager is very different than a 40-something-year-old manager. Quite honestly, for me, it's developing people that I can trust. I think trust is an important element. And I set the stage when I have someone new of like, hey, I prefer working with people that are going to take risks and make decisions than people that are going to just always ask for permission. Um, but I have one rule, and that is that if something goes wrong, that you come and tell me first and quickly. Because my view is there's no harm in mistakes. We all make mistakes. The sooner I know about it, the quicker I can help support and solve it. So I think that is an element. I think making sure that you develop people that shore up your weaknesses. You know, we're, we're not all good at everything for sure. You know, I'm a very analytical person. So I always knew on my marketing team, I always needed to have strong creatives because that wasn't always my strong suit. So how do you recognize your strengths and weaknesses and how do you balance that in your team? 
is really important. And I think for me, one of the things, and, and maybe it was for me because it was a hard thing, and I think it is a hard thing for a lot of people, is developing people from individual contributors to managers and leaders. I mean, that is a hard transition, especially for uh, kind of overachievers in the individual contributor line, right? You know, how do you let go? How do you mentor and coach someone to do what you're doing? And I vividly remember those days. I mean, I wasn't always the most patient soul when I was young, trying to teach how people how to to do the things I was doing. I, I tell people a lot that one of the best things that happened to me was having children because I actually had to leave and go have a, have a child, right? So maternity leave turned out to be a wonderful thing. I'm an advocate of sabbaticals too, for that reason. It forced me to actually let go of things. I remember, you know, one of my kids was born during the time I would have bought all of our local media. And I went to the woman that was helping me do that. And it was literally probably her second time around for buying media. And I was like, okay, you're going to have to do this. Like, you're just going to have to do it, you know? And so I, I gave her a goal and I always was, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly frugal. So, you know, we were diligent negotiators, you know, so I gave her a number that I wanted her to hit and she knew she didn't want to deliver anywhere close to that number. She wanted to do better. So she gave herself another number she came back and negotiated better deals than I had. And I never negotiated another <laughs> ad contract after that, <laughs> you know, but you know, when you're gone long enough, you know, it's something that you have to give other folks a chance. And I think sometimes that can be the best, you know, that's the best approach. So, so I always encourage people to take that time. Yeah. It's about, I, I think you talk a lot about the delegating decision-making Right. And, and I think that's when you become a manager or a leader of some sort, that, that becomes something that's not easy to do because you want to be involved in every decision right. and, and delegating that decision making becomes a challenge. So definitely an important learning. A lot has changed in the world in 25 years that Angie's List has been around and especially the last year, I can imagine. How do you make leadership decisions to successfully navigate those changing landscapes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that makes me you know, most excited about staying involved in the company. To this day, my two criteria are, do I like the people I'm working with and do I feel challenged? And if I can check yes to those two things and I'm in the right spot, I would definitely say this last year because definitely checked the kind of, are there challenges? I mean, there are things we just never even thought about. And I'm just fascinated by how things have changed and kind of what things look like in another year, right? We managed to get thousands of employees working remotely. We never thought we'd be able to do that, but we did because, you know, we had to, that was a necessity and they're doing really well. We had to help small businesses figure out how to navigate the landscape of a world of COVID. You know, they are, you know, home improvement contractors are essential businesses and they typically are the smallest of small businesses. So when when we say small, we're like, hey, our, the average size of a business that's on, you know, Angie's List or Home Advisor is four people. Four. There's no front, there's no big marketing or corporate team that can kind of help figure out how they're going to institute new safety measures and things like that, right? They have to figure this out on the fly while they're, you know, still doing their trade. You know, we spent time lobbying in support of the PPP program to make sure that this, these mm -hmm. smallest companies actually got represented because they didn't have accountants and lawyers that were going to help them apply for these loans and things get complicated. 
and I was so impressed with how companies, these small businesses quickly evolved. I think it was maybe six weeks after COVID kind of really hit. And by that point already, 90% of the pros reported that they had already instituted new safety measures. They were already evolving their businesses. And, it, and so it'll be really interesting. I mean, you know, video calls replaced in-person estimates. You know, and all of a sudden the pros are realizing, oh, I can visit four customers during that two hour period instead of, you know, two. You know, will we, will it ever go back? I, I don't know, but I think it's certainly opening folks up to test and try new and interesting things. Yes, we've definitely seen the, the dramatic changes, but it's great to see the work that, that you've helped these small businesses, because like you say, many of them, I'm a part of a chamber of commerce, and, and it has been very difficult for small businesses to figure out how to pivot because they don't have that longer term business vision or experience yeah. to, to know how to pivot their business. So that's awesome that you've been able to right. do that with yours. What role do you think a company culture, and now that culture, again, is becoming one of those things on the rise, one of those big trends as we move forward, play in leading through, you know, difficult situations in the past and now the difficult situations that we're going to continue to live through at least the next couple of years? Yeah. And I think culture is is key to the success of a business. And, you know, and I think that when leaders don't choose to invest in it, it doesn't mean they don't have a culture. It just means it's one that they didn't help cultivate. So I think that needs to be, I think that needs to be top of the top of the list. Kind of like, what are the norms of working here? How do we, how do we support one another? I mean, these are, these are basic, basic things. I mean, you know, my team will oftentimes say that I go back to kind of the things that I learned in kindergarten, right? You know, how are we treating one another? <laughs> Keep things simple. We're going to measure you on three things. You know, because I find that sometimes the most simple approach to things is sometimes the, the best. But, you know, how do you how do you make sure that you're balancing working hard, but also not taking yourself too seriously? You know, so so defining kind of who you are and what you are is a type of thing that will define being able to attract talent. You know, pe these things matter to people a lot, you know, not only kind of your your company values, your company culture, but also, you know, how are how is your company playing a role in your community? You know, what things are you doing? These things all go back and are super important. You know, for example, our organization has we do charitable giving every year and it's completely be driven. So our employees select based on a survey every year, we we ask them what what types of local charities they're interested in supporting. We have a committee of employees that actually review all the grants and select the grants based on the employee criteria. And then we, then we donate these grants as well as align volunteer opportunities to support them. So, you know, how are, how are we, you know, kind of making sure that we're not only taking care of our team, but also the areas that we, that we live. It's part of, I'm, I see it as integrating you know, your culture, your purpose, your values across everything that, that you do, not only internally, but externally, to your point, the community inclusive. And I think that's, that's something that many other companies also need to learn to do and, and revisit as, as they move forward. We're yeah. starting to get a lot of questions from our audience, so I'm going to take a couple of them as we move forward. Please, anybody else who has questions, feel free to send them over. 
when you were talking about, you know, the, the small business piece, which is an important <laughs> piece of, of yeah. your business, uh, how much partner support services did you build for those small businesses? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we we spent a lot of time over the years trying to decide, you know, should we should we develop a lot of tools for them? Should we, you know, should we help them aggregate and get health insurance, for example, or, you know, all types of elements. And, you know, one of the things that we learned more often than not is the one thing that we provided and were incredibly successful at was actually helping them just better their business. If you think about the reviews and the the intel that our team could provide, it was like, how do you how do you really supercharge your growth and how do you build that business? That became so. I've always thought there was almost like a mini consulting element of of Angie's list, even though it was never formal. Of you know of how to grow your business, and that was certainly an element of importance. You know, looking over the last you know over the last few. Uh, last year or so, I mean, we've, we've introduced a number of tools to support pros, especially during the pandemic. You know, we have a payments application where pros can, you know, collect all of their payments from their, both their consumers that they're getting through us, as well as elsewhere through our platform. We also have a financing tool that we recently introduced, so consumers can finance projects. So maybe they were thinking about putting that swimming pool in, but, you know, we can make it a one-stop shop by being able to do that. You know, we've introduced video chat, things like that. So there's been a number of tools that we've created to just help them run their businesses more efficiently. That's awesome. Awesome. Going back to, you know, the, the time where you were in, in, in school, where you were talking, having this, this learning phase from a business perspective, are there top three things that you learned from Harvard School that you integrate it into your business once you went back? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great question. You know, I think, I think one was a problem solving mindset. You know, I think that, you know, in business, it's really about, you know, seeing scenarios, being able to determine what type of problem it is so that you can, you can determine how to solve it. I think that was one element. I think it also Elevating out of the weeds. I think every entrepreneur has the has has the challenge of kind of not making sure that they're playing kind of all the way down to the final detail in the business. And I think that certainly that certainly helped as well. And then, you know, you know, quite honestly, just the the network and 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 colleagues that I developed while I was there. I mean, I've I've been out of HBS over 20 years now. And, you know, and still I, I know that if something, you know, something unusual comes out, I've got that, that, that core of people that I can call. And there's probably one in that group that probably has the experience that I might be trying to solve for. You, you mentioned, and I think that's extremely important, you know, the networking piece, obviously there's a lot of learning elements in, in, in when you go to business, but definitely that networking piece, not only there, but throughout our lives and, and as an entrepreneur, it becomes extremely important. In your position now as, you know, this, the, a leader, an executive leader in, in, in your company, in the industry, and also as a woman, you mentioned a while back about mentorship and the importance of being a mentor to others in, in their professional development. Is that something, how do you is that something that you do today? How do you integrate that as part of 
you know, continuing to build and lead the way for those future generations. Yeah. So I think when I think about mentorship, I don't think about it as a, a kind of like, hey, I'm going to have one mentoree and I'm going to help them and we're going to have a, a two-year mentoring relationship. I think about it every day, quite honestly. And I think, you know, for me, I think one of the hardest things as the company grew was the day I realized I didn't know everyone's name anymore. That was one of the hardest, that was one of the hardest days for me, I think, you know, because I, I get real energy kind of seeing kind of others succeed and getting to know people. So I would introduce things that I could do to continue to develop that rapport with folks. So I had read in a book once that that there was an, a successful executive that off, that did office hours. They had been a professor before an executive. And I introduced office hours where I dedicated an hour a week and anyone could sign up in the company for a 15-minute slot. They didn't have to have an agenda before they showed up. It could be for any purpose. It could be that they had a business idea. It could be that they had a grievance. It could be that they just wanted to get to know me better. <laughs> it could be, you know, it could be they needed some career advice. And and I found that the in, informal nature of that allowed me to interact and and spend time with people across the organization from, you know, kind of vice presidents in the company all the way down to our frontline call center team. And, and quite honestly, those experiences were probably, you know, I would, I would have to argue as to who they were more rewarding for, whether it was for the person that was coming in or was it for me, because I certainly learned a ton from those interactions. That, that's, thank you for sharing that, because that's a question that I always see, at least when with the entrepreneurs that I interact, it's like, how do you, how do you build those connections with, you know, with people that are not necessarily your direct reports. So that's a great advice for, for some of our, our participants and viewers today. As, and, and continuing then on that thought, with everything being virtual right now, and, and I would say almost 100% of our interactions, how, do you, how have you seen or what have been the best practices that either you or your teams have have used to continue to build that that culture, that relationship, that that interaction that before could have been done in person, but now you know it's it's very hard. Yeah, I think I think in some ways you have to be very purposeful. I think about the number of people that work for our organization that haven't actually met someone face to face. Right? I mean, we're a year in. <laughs> um, you have to be creative and purposeful in how you do that. So for example, one of the things that we had historically done was fireside chats. Obviously in-person leaders would stand up and talk to the entire team in one location in the office. And we spent, you know, we've spent the better part of nine months really trying to make them more regular so that we went from them being, you know, once a month to every couple of weeks to being very engaging and, and kind of, it's, it's a trial and error to kind of figure out what's the right mix, but, but, you know, kind of, how do you get enough voices in the experience? How do you make sure you touch on the right topics and, you know, make sure people stay engaged and excited about what we're doing. And that's something that we continue to evolve, you know, to this day, because it's been a, it's been a good tool, but we know it can always be better. You know, I know that I've, I've introduced instead of, you know, longer, less frequent meetings, I do more frequent, quicker meetings. 
you know, that way there is some, you know, there's interaction more often because I do think people can, it can feel quite isolating, you know, when you're working alone and, you know, and making sure that you're still taking the first few minutes of every meeting talking about just what you did over the weekend and, and life, because that's something that can easily get, that can get interrupted. I also think it's just, I think it's a hard, you know, where we, where we thought we lived in a world of multitasking before the pandemic, we certainly do now, even more so. And I, I remind people that they, they need to make sure that they are, you know, kind of setting their own boundaries and setting their own parameters, because you're absolutely right. You can literally work from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed and the world will let you, <laughs> you know, so how do you, you know, how do you make sure that you set boundaries? What do you do? I mean, I remember, and this was, you know, way pre-pandemic. I mean, I, you know, like a lot of people, I would, you know, go to sleep with my smartphone on my nightstand. And even if it was the ringer was turned off, I could hear it vibrate. I could hear things come in. Like, you know, the, the time I decided that in no, you know, kind of nowhere, no longer shall my phone be anywhere near my sleeping area, it made a difference. But you have to kind of set those boundaries and it'll be okay. I mean, and maybe it's because, you know, I've worked long enough that I worked in the world before, uh, before smartphones, before you kind of took your computer home that like literally when you were on vacation, you were on vacation. <laughs> like they would have to call the hotel and talk to you if you were, if they needed you. Those are, those are times that we have to kind of, we have to be very protective of our, our time like that because it's easy for it not to be there. And it's super important to staying charged. Yes. Self-care is becoming definitely another one of those rising topics. How right. do you put those boundaries? Again, very easy to say, not necessarily so easy to, to actually yeah. do that and, and be intentional about that. So following then on that note, uh, how do you, what would you recommend or what are your best practices in terms of when, when do you get involved and when do you let go? You talked about earlier about, you know, learning how to let go, but being, you know, at the top of the business, making sure that things are still moving forward I imagine that there's that urge of trying to be involved in everything, make all these decisions, and that's when the time just gets consumed. So mm -hmm. how do you, what have you found helpful in terms of when do you get involved? When do you delegate? How do you let go? Yeah, I think part of it is also, you know, how do you give people the space to be the expert that they are? And I think that is that is something that you have to practice a lot. You know, in fact, I, I would recall kind of times I would go to meetings and I'm like, okay, Angie, you're not going to actually answer the questions. You're going to let the silence be for the, so that the people that are actually the experts in that area have a chance. And, and I think it's something that people have to actively manage because it's very easy for, for, you know, kind of someone that's been in an organization for a long time to be able to on the fly, give an opinion, answer the question, how, you know, but, but that doesn't allow the organization to grow. So how do you, you know, so how do you make sure that you're kind of balancing that and kind of holding back and, and, you know, not to the detriment, but like making sure that you're doing it in a balanced way. Is there, you touch on, on, on several points that I love, especially the silence piece, the, the power of silence so important to let others sort of contribute versus just listening. All, all of these 
points that you talk about, you know, they're, I can see them perfectly being applied in larger organizations where, you know, you can have like all these different people that, that can support your growth. Is there any, you talked about, you know, developing all these different like manuals or toolkits for your smaller businesses that they're also going through the same thing. They're also going through the burnout phase. They're also going through the, you know, I have, I have a lot of decisions to make. I have so many things to handle, but they're a small team. You mentioned some of them, you know, up to just four people. So it makes it harder for them to be able to delegate, for them to be able to have this additional support team. Any, any thoughts on how, you know, smaller teams can still feel that they can have that, that space and, and how to manage that, avoid the burnout, basically? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think, especially, you know, I think about those small businesses, I think part of it is making sure that, you know, well, you may not be able, you know, you might be too small to have kind of breadth of folks to have mentors inside your organization. How are you, how are you learning and evolving and networking with other companies? I mean, we would do kind of back when we could do events, right? (laughs) You know, we would do events where we would bring, you know, contractors from across the country together. And, you know, one of the things they loved about that interaction the most was the chance to meet other plumbers from other parts of the country. So they may not want to network with the plumber that they're competing with in in Chicago, but but gosh, it's super interesting to learn from that plumber in St. Louis, you know. And those are those were really valuable interactions that that we that we've been able to create over the years. And I think that's something that's um, because I think sometimes we just think about who's right here, who's right near me that I can talk to. Like how do we how do we expand that network for those folks to be able to give them, you know. Uh, a safe mentoring relationship that they enjoy that they can really learn from. That that's really powerful. The the networking across. I think that's something that with the with you know things being online, I can imagine that being so much easier. Right. Because now you don't have to physically be there and like you say, Correct. you can then learn best practices from somebody completely on the other side that to your point is not your direct competitor, so to so right. to speak. So that that's wonderful. In in terms of as as we move into, you know, this continued new world, any any insights into where do you think, at least for for Angie's list, you know, we're gonna continue to or you're gonna continue to head? Yeah. So you know I think it's when I think about where we are in the in the home improvement industry. I mean, you know, despite the fact that we've been in the industry for 25 years, you know, there's still so much opportunity. You know, still it's 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 a small percentage of the of of consumers actually go online to schedule their scheduled time with their plumber. You know, whereas, you know, kind of shopping has been, you know, an online kind of industry for quite some time. So I think there's a lot of evolution and it's super exciting to think about how when smart technology starts to couple with the ability to bring pros out in a very efficient way could be a really game changer to caring for our homes. You know, the things that we may not even think about as homeowners 
might become things that are just can happen in the background, right? My favorite example is always gutter cleaning. Like I know I should clean my gutters twice a year because that's going to, you know, keep my house in good condition, keep water out of my basement, you name it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's it's the chore that oftentimes gets forgotten, right? Because it shows up too low on my to-do list on a given day. But if I just knew that it was happening and it didn't engage and kind of interfere with whatever the day-to-day the -day stream of things, I would certainly want to do it. You know, so I think there's a lot of transformation yet ahead in the home improvement space. And, and I'm excited to be part of that team that can lead that charge. Part of the things that, that I've seen are happening in, in across many companies is, is partnering with other companies and organizations that in the past you would have never even thought of partnering with because you thought it was like an industry or an area that has nothing to do with, with yours. And I think as we move forward, what we've learned is these collaborations and these partnerships can actually, you know, bring not only better experiences and deliver better products and services to our consumers, but it also opens a, a gamut of, you know, completely new possibilities. Any, any thoughts and any partnerships that, that, you know, this pandemic has brought Angie's list? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think we're always thinking about where there are opportunities to kind of solve for things. And I think, you know, probably the most recent one was a partnership with a firm, which is the financing company that we just partnered with, you know, which, which really is allowing access to capital and allowing small businesses to be able to attract customers they may not have been able to before because they didn't have a simple solution for how to pay for that swimming pool you want to put in. So, you know, you're always, you know, we always are thinking about ways that we can continue to make the entire process of caring for your home simpler and easier. And it may not always be that we're the, you know, might partnering might be better than building at times. And we always make that kind of build versus partner decision. Awesome. What makes you most proud from your tenure at Angie's List? Oh, quite honestly, you know, the, the impact we have on, on individuals. So I kind of stack it kind of in twofold one on, you know, on the employees that work there or have worked there in the past, you know, watching people develop and go off and build their careers has been phenomenal. I, I share this story. Sometimes I, I was getting off a plane a couple of years ago and a young man came up to me and was walking out toward the parking garage and he was just like I just I just wanted to say you know I worked at Angie's List right out of college and you know you really helped to set my career out on the right trajectory you know he had gone off and was doing other great fantastic things but you know kind of hearing that story you know kind of knowing that you're making an impact in people's lives is is, is incredibly rewarding. And, you know, the same can go for, you know, I could give you stories about contractors that we've, you know, helped build their business or homeowners that kind of engaged in, in kind of taking care of their home and building projects that they may never have done without us. And, and that, and that kind of human element of it is what, what it makes me most proud. Congratulations. I think that that impact that we can have on, on others definitely, you know, it, it's always so rewarding. It's like the legacy that, that right. you leave behind. Uh, I've seen, at least in, in my 
environment and, and where where I'm at, you know, many, many people starting to think about, you know, becoming entrepreneurs themselves. May, that's sort of part of the next chapter. Any any thoughts, any insights of, of you know, that life? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think kind of part of it is coming up with your idea. I don't know that it always has to, I think sometimes we overthink the coming up with the idea. So if you think back to kind of the Angie's List origins, we actually copied another business, like, right, there was a business in Indiana that didn't, wasn't anywhere else. So I think there is that element of like, hey, is it, is it, is it an idea that is truly unique that you completely come up with? Or is it taking an interesting idea to other places? So, so thinking about that, I think also just, you know, who you surround yourself in that original part of the journey, what kind of support system you have is key to, is key to your success because, you know, kind of starting a business certainly has its ups and downs and having a good support system is what's going to get you through because there will be times, there will be many times that you're like, I'm done, I'm done with this. And, and, and that perseverance is oftentimes the thing that makes a difference. Well, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your story and, and all the different accomplishments that you've done, not only for the, pe the people that work for you, but also for others that depend on Angie's List to be able to, to pay for their bills and, and build their life and make them better. So thank you so, so much for, for sharing those stories. It's always important to hear from others to get inspiration. Any, any last, you know, nuggets? that you'd like to share? You know, I think, you know, I oftentimes think back that like starting Angie's List was a door that opened. I think a lot of times people have that plan in life of like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Stay nimble because you never know what door might open for you and what it might lead to. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for your time, for being with us. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thanks for having and me. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Ida Abdelkani. And I'm still Raman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.